This is what says the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, and all the way to 6. At that, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn up and become like a children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humble himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such a child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great milestone fastened around his neck and to be thrown in the depths of the sea. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, good morning. My name is Paul Brandis, and I have the privilege of serving the Brookside campus of Christ Community as an associate pastor. Uh, the staff got to spend some time uh, with Kitachu yesterday, which, as you can imagine, was uh, a real joy and privilege and honor, and so thankful for him and the work that God is doing through him and through the rest of the leadership in the 11th Hour Network, um, and we're grateful that we had that time with him today. I want to extend an extra special welcome to uh, those of you who may be visiting us from the Shawnee Mission campus. Uh, hopefully, uh, those of you who are Brookside regulars uh, know that we launched our uh, fifth campus 18 months ago, and uh, they meet in a, a middle school uh, at 75th in Quivira. And uh, this week, the hottest week of the whole year, the air conditioning went out. Uh, and so they have canceled services at Shawnee Mission, and we welcome you into our air conditioning. And we welcome you into our beautiful building. I mean, I know this is just a tiny bit prettier than the gym that you meet in normally. So I don't want to bash on it too hard. But uh, Brookside folks, if you meet someone from Shawnee Mission, ask them how it's going. I've heard some incredible stories of what God is doing in the midst of that congregation. And if you know anyone that lives uh, near the school, Trail Ridge Middle School, um, let them know that we've got a Christ Community campus there. So if you'd bow your heads and pray with me as we ask for God's help to understand his word. Eternal Father, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. I grew up in the Chicagoland area, in a suburb north of the city, about 45 minutes, called Gurney, Illinois. It's about 30,000 people, and I mean, if you know the Chicagoland area at all, you know that it's just one of dozens and dozens of suburbs, so it's not often that people haven't heard of it, uh, but if they have, if they know Gurney, Illinois, it's for one reason and one reason only. We had a killer Six Flags Great America. I've got a picture. Uh, if you're on I-94 passing through Chicagoland and you, you exit or you, you just pass the exit uh, in Gurney, you see this uh, from the highway. Uh, this is an amusement park that people from all over the country drive to experience, and it was 12 minutes from my front door when I was growing up as a kid. So, of course, we had season passes. We were there often, and I texted my mom this week. I said, hey, do you have any pictures of me from when I was young at Six Flags? And my mom came through, didn't she? So... Uh, I'm two and a half. I'm rocking it out with, uh, with Bugs and Daffy here. Uh, or yeah, is that, Am I get that right? Yeah. Uh, Bugs and Daffy Duck. And um, I love Six Flags as much as the next kid. I mean, clearly, look at how happy and cute I am. <laughs> it's good. That's, you guys got that one. Good. 
Uh, but there was one part of Six Flags that I hated. And I'm not alone in this. I know it. I know it. And this is at amusement parks all over the country, right? I hated the dreaded height limit signs. You know what I'm talking about, right? You must be this tall to ride. And if you're an adult, it's probably been a while since these signs have affected you at amusement parks, but, but try to remember with me. I've got a picture to help you out here, right? Must be this tall to ride. And as a kid, I mean, you're at Six Flags, you're at Worlds of Fun, it's, it's, this is it, right? It's the waiting, it's the hoping, it's the anticipation. For me, there was this ride, the Viper, did I grow enough this past year to be old enough and tall enough to ride the Viper? And then the anguish, the disappointment, the sorrow, right? And this experience, I don't think this is just for amusement parks. When I think back to my time as a kid, I feel like most of life was spent with a desperate longing to be older, to be taller, to be bigger, to be able to order off the adult menu at restaurants. <laughs> and I think that I'm not alone in that. When you're a kid, it feels like most of life has a sign like this attached to it. Must be this tall to get on the ride of life. And that's what makes today's passage so incredible. Because Jesus says exactly the opposite. Jesus says that when it comes to getting on to the ride of his kingdom, you must be this short to ride. That's right, short. Or I'll put it this way, Jesus says that when it comes to his kingdom, only a child gets in. Jesus says that when it comes to his kingdom, only a child gets in. And we know, right, whether in Jesus' day or ours, this is a great reversal. This is not how most of life works. This is a shocking, grabbing statement. So how did Jesus come to make it? How did he come to make such a bold claim? Well, let me set the scene for you in our passage, Matthew chapter 18. And the story, our story this morning, it begins with this rather strange interaction between Jesus and his disciples. And it's a strange interaction because once again, right before this, Jesus has foretold of his coming capture and death. He's brought those who are closest to him around him and he said, this is not going to end well. And predictably, these, these men who had given their lives for him, they're distressed by this. They are in great anguish and sorrow. That's what the end of chapter 17 tells us. But apparently, this grief was short-lived because seemingly five minutes later, here at the beginning of Matthew 18, we're told that the disciples were arguing and bickering and discussing amongst themselves who is the greatest. It's weird, isn't it? But apparently, this argument of who's the greatest is an ancient one. Today, we even have an acronym to help us out, right? GOAT. G-O-A-T. Greatest of all time. And if you type that into Google plus anything else, you're going to get millions of hits. Because we as humans love to have this debate. Who's the best basketball player? Who's the best musician? Who is the greatest of all time? And I think the reason why we love this debate and have loved it for thousands of years is because as humans, we're obsessed with being better. The better employee, the better parent, the better Christian, the better spouse. Ever since the beginning of time, when Cain killed his brother Abel for having the better sacrifice to God, humans have played the comparison game. 
And so while the disciples have completely and totally missed everything that Jesus has been driving at for the first 17 chapters of this book, I don't think we should be too hard on them. In fact, I'll be the first to admit that if I was one of the 12, I would have been right in the thick of this with the other disciples. Yeah, Jesus, come on. Who is it? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And at first, it probably seems as though Jesus hasn't even heard them. He's, he's not answering the question, and he's kind of looking around for something, or as it turns out, he's looking around for someone. His eyes land on a child, just a kid, nobody really. But Jesus calls that child to himself, and he, he places the child in their midst. And I really want you to picture that scene with me this morning. Most likely, it wasn't just the 12 disciples there. Imagine a crowd gathered around Jesus, all of them grown adults. Jesus, by this point, has more than proven his excellency as a teacher. And this is a good question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven that you've been preaching about? The adults are hanging on his every word, but, but instead of an answer, he launches into this strange object lesson. He draws this kid to them, and, and, and he points at the kid, and then, and then he looks around at all the adults, and it's a, he says, you're worried about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? If you even want to get in, you've got to become like him. You've got to turn and become like a child. Because in Jesus' kingdom, only a child gets in. Must be this short to ride. It's an incredibly moving scene, I think. And Jesus doesn't stop, he continues. He goes on to name explicitly what it is about children that allows them into the kingdom of heaven. What is it that makes them greater? Verse 4 in our passage reads this way Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Why do kids get in? Why are they the greatest? Jesus' answer, humility. Now, maybe you're thinking, humility? Clearly, Jesus hasn't met many kids, certainly not my children. And that's fair, right? Kids that are here this morning, no offense, but most of you that I've met, you're kind of the center of your own world. Not exactly the perfect picture of humility that we might expect. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, we have to see that Jesus is not with kids, not talking about a chosen humility. It's not as though kids are walking around saying, today I reject pride and arrogance and I instead will choose humility. Not so much. No, children possess a humility that comes from their position and place in society. Think about it. Kids, they don't have power, control, or authority. They're often forgotten or pushed aside, and they're extremely dependent upon others. Children are in an incredibly humble place in society. And, and with this acknowledgement, I don't mean to talk down to kids. I would never dream of doing that. And we have to see that that's not what Jesus is doing either. Remember, he's calling this child to him. He's raising a children up as an example for the disciples. He's saying there is something about this child's humble position in society that is good, that is right. There is something about the positional humility of this child that is a prerequisite to the kingdom of heaven. And that, to me, I mean, means we've got to ask that question. What is it? What is it about the positional humility of a child that is desirable in Jesus' mind? Why is it worth emulating? 
And I think there are three aspects of a child's positional humility related to the kingdom. A child's position in society means that in them, we see the humility to ask, the humility to wonder, and the humility to love. First, in children, we see the humility to ask. And this one's right in front of you, right? I mean, if you've spent any time at all with children, you know that none of them have any problem with asking. (laughs) If you're a parent in here, how many times, just, you know, offhand, have you said, stop asking? (laughs) Is it it 100 million? Is it 200 million, right? This is a common refrain from parents. Why is this? Why do children ask? Well, it's because they're inherently dependent upon someone else. They have needs, they can't meet their needs, and so they come and they approach and they ask over and over and over again. I've noticed this with my uh, 15-month son, uh, Bevan. This is a recent picture of the two of us. In fact, it's impossible to miss that he does this with Bevan because every other minute, I'm not exaggerating, it's as though he's coming to my wife, Ashley, or I, and he's asking. He's expressing uh, his need, and he is asking us to, to meet and fulfill that need. And, and right now, he's in this, um, what's the word, uh, wonderful, hear the sarcasm, <laughs> wonderful grunting stage, right? 15 months old. So he's hungry, grunt. He needs his milk, grunt. He's lost a toy under the couch, point and grunt, right? We've tried to teach him like the sign language, like please, right? Which is like, you know, like this, but he just kind of claps. And so it's like, are you clapping? Are you asking for something? He's always asking for something, right? You can't miss it with a 15 month old, right? Bevan knows that he can't meet his own needs, so he, because of his position, he has the humility to ask over and over without ceasing until Ashley or I meet his needs. He begs us and he begs us until we give in. And I want to ask us this morning, when's the last time we asked for help like that? Or even, when's the last time we asked for help at all? Because you see, what I've noticed, both in my own life and in the lives of the adults around me, is that as we get older, we enter into something that I like to call, I got this mode. We know what I got this mode sounds like, right? No, no, don't worry. I'm doing fine. I can handle it. No help needed. Thanks for asking. We're good. Does that sound familiar? As adults, we often go through great pains to avoid asking for help. We move to the opposite end of the spectrum. It's almost as if we would rather experience the loss or the pain or the cost rather than humble ourselves to the place of asking for help. I know I've done that. By the time we grow up, we hardly remember what it's like to ask for help anymore. And that's to our great harm Because I think we'd all be in a better place if we could admit that we can't do it, that we need help. And if we get to that point, then what we would realize is that King Jesus is there. He's there just like I'm there for Bevan. He's there for us, and he's saying, ask me, depend upon me. I'm here for you. I won't let you down. Only a child gets in. They've got the humility to ask for it. Second, in children, we see the humility to wonder. The humility to wonder. My wife Ashley has a younger cousin named Carly who has Down syndrome. 
Carly is one of my favorite people in the world, and she is a child who perfectly displays the humility to wonder. In fact, here's a picture of Carly. Uh, she's wondering and marveling at a giraffe. <laughs> Isn't that the face of wonder? I also chose this picture because it's got a giraffe in it. So any students in here, they know what I'm talking about. We've been playing a game called Giraffe Facts uh, in student ministry, so it made me think of it. But Carly, wondering and marveling at this giraffe. I love it. A couple Christmases ago, uh, we were with Carly, and I was able to have the deep honor and privilege of watching her open her gifts. And I kid you not, every single gift, here was her exact response. Oh my word. No way. (laughs) Over and over again, no matter what the gift was, Pez dispenser in her stocking. Oh my word. No way. Socks. Oh my word. Stuffed animals, toys, games, over and over and over again. Every time she opened a gift, no matter what it was, oh my word. The humility to wonder and marvel. And you know, I I think I've observed that we as adults, I noticed this in my own life, we have lost the ability to say really for anything, oh my word. And that is to our great harm, because think over and over again in Scripture how many times we are commanded, we are prodded, we are pushed to fear the Lord our God. Not not be scared of him, but to sit in awe of him, to be consumed by him. To, To fear the Lord means to sit in all that he has done for us and all that he is. It's to sit at his feet and it is to go, oh my word, no way. When's the last time you did that with God? When's the last time you you had the humility to wonder like I've seen in Carly over and over and over again? When's the last time God did something and you went, oh my word, no way. G.K. Chesterton, a British author and theologian, he writes, this is so beautiful, he says, God has the eternal appetite of infancy But we adults have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. God has the eternal appetite of infancy, and in our sinful state, we've grown old, and I'm convinced that we've lost the ability to wonder and to marvel. And again, that's only to our harm, because even just for a second, stop and think about how much there is when it comes to God, how much there is to marvel at, how much there is to wonder Only a child gets in because children possess the humility to wonder. And finally, in children, we see the humility to love. Throughout the book of Matthew, we've witnessed Jesus' encounters with the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and Sadducees. These are people who are obsessed with rules, stacking rules on rules on rules. And in these encounters, we often see Jesus pushing back, challenging them. He reminds them that while rules are important, relationship comes first. Relationship comes first. And all of these interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders are in the background of our passage in Matthew 18 as Jesus calls a child to him and raises him up as an example. For Jesus and his teaching and in his life, it's clear that relationship is more important than rules. And I'm sure you've noticed this too. That is absolutely true of children. And not just because they like to break rules, although that's probably true as well, 
but because relationship for kids frames their entire world. It's how they process everything. And it's not that rules are unimportant, it's just that they're not the most important. It's about a relationship first, it's about love first, and children know that and live that out in really beautiful and unexpected ways. You know, knowing that this sermon was coming, uh, I decided it couldn't just be an adult who got to speak about this, right? It'd be weird if only an adult shared in a sermon like this. And so we grabbed a camera last week and we brought it down with us, the children's ministries, and we, we asked some kids some questions. We've got a great video to show you this morning. And one of the questions that we asked them was, if Jesus was standing here with you right now today, what would you say to him? And the responses of the kids to that question, pay extra attention to those. Let's watch. Why are kids so great? They get to like, play outside um, a lot more and they don't have to like, have like, a job. Because they turn up into grown-ups and then they turn into grandma and grandpas. Because they're young. Because everybody has smell, grown-ups, people, sisters, brothers, babies. Because they're toys. I'm also a toy hoarder. Cause they're younger and their dads can't do much as they can. And their dads have to work a lot, but they don't. And a lot of times they get the day off. Cause we have a bigger imagination. They're nice. How could we be more like kids? How can grown-ups be more like you? How should grown-ups be more like kids? By playing all the time. Maybe feel like a little bit more relaxed, I guess. Um, not feel so stressed. Maybe have a little bit more fun. <laughs> Help others. How should grown-ups be more like kids? Well, a long time ago, grown-ups were actually, actually kids. If Jesus were right here with you, what would you want to say to him? Hmm. Hello. Would you want to say anything else to him? Yep. Thank you for the world. I love you, Jesus. I would want to say that I'm Give them a huge round of applause, right? Isn't that amazing? And did you catch, did you catch how they answered the question about Jesus? I love you. Thank you. I will always listen to your voice. You know, with that specific answer that is at the 1045 service, and that was the big idea of the lesson at the 9 a.m. service. I will always listen to your voice. I love you more than anything I know. 
virtually every single answer had something to do with their relationship with Jesus. And I imagine if we asked that same question of adults, we might get some of that, but we'd also get, I imagine, questions centered around theology or doctrine. And it's not as though those would be wrong questions or bad or incorrect. It's just that when it comes to Jesus, he lays the emphasis on relationship. He knows that that's the pathway to understanding and knowing. And kids know that too. You know, author Larry Osborne in a book, he really points that out. He, he says, if you go into any Sunday school class, you're going to see some pretty wacky theology, right? But as we just saw, kids have some of the purest and just most beautiful relationships with God through Jesus. I think we can learn something from that. Only a child gets in because kids possess the humility to love. One of the other questions we asked was, how can adults be more like kids? I loved their responses there. I'm going to take the, uh, don't be as stressed, have more fun. I'm going to take that to heart, right? Good answers. And I love that question because I think it's where we need to close this morning. Because if this is all really true, and if Jesus is right, and I think he is, if kids are really greater, then we should ask, how do I get younger? How do I get younger? How do I become more like a kid? And well, to get younger, you must first get smaller, get smaller. And this is right out of our passage this morning, back to verse 4. Jesus, holding a child up as an example, he says, humble yourself like this child. In other words, get smaller, seek to be less. In fact, seek to be last. Fight pride and arrogance, pursue humility. If you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, humble yourself to the position that this child occupies. Get smaller. Author C.S. Lewis has written brilliantly about humility. He says, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize one is proud. And this is a biggish step, too. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. So that's the first step. It's classic, right? Admit the problem. But isn't Lewis right? I mean, pride is such a slippery little devil. It sits at the root of so many other sins. And admitting that you struggle with it and haven't defeated it is the first step on a journey towards true humility. Unfortunately, the second step on this journey isn't quite as clear. Author and pastor Tim Keller, he, he points this out as he writes about the difficulty of acquiring humility. He says, humility is so shy. If you begin talking about it, it leaves. Did anyone happen to catch the recent interview with a particular presidential candidate on 60 Minutes? It reveals how elusive humility is. You're not known as a humble person, the interviewer says. The candidate cuts in and says, and this is an exact quote, I think I am actually humble. I think I'm much more humble than you would understand. Now, I'm not commenting on this candidate's politics, so please save your emails. I'm not even going to tell you who said it, and I bet you'll never guess. <laughs> but come on, humility? C.S. Lewis goes on to talk about how humility is not about thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In other words, true humility is not, oh, I'm awful and horrible, I'm the worst. No, that's not it. True humility is where you simply don't come to your own mind that much. A true humility, in Lewis's words, is blessed self-forgetfulness. Blessed self-forgetfulness. 
I'll be the first this morning to admit I am light years away from that. And most of the time, most days, I'm thinking about myself, my work, my family, my problems, my struggles, my hopes, my dreams, my goals, my to-do list, my, my, me, me, me. Blessed self-forgetfulness, for me, it's more like consuming self-absorption. I've got a long way to go when it comes to getting smaller. Maybe you're with me. Well, what's the answer? We become like a child. One New Testament scholar describes children this way while reflecting on this passage in Matthew 18. He writes, The little child can do nothing to bring about his status. All that the child is and has comes from someone else. Jesus' followers are not great achievers who carve out for themselves a niche in the kingdom of heaven. For all that they have and all that they are depend on the heavenly Father. Dependence on the Father, that's how we get smaller. We go to him every single day with our arms open wide saying, I can't do it. I fall short on my own. Help me. Save me. A Christian is not someone perfect with all the answers. No, a Christian is a desperately needy child who goes to his or her father every single day to humbly ask for help. That's a Christian. And this is the beautiful truth of the gospel, isn't it? We may be adults, but in the gospel, we're allowed to be born again. If you want to get smaller, you have to embrace the good news of what Jesus has done for you. We're all sinful, needy children. Yes, that's the bad news. But here's the good news. Jesus is a greater Savior than you or I are sinners. Jesus is a greater Savior than you or I are sinners. And where is the room for pride in that story? You and I were so bad off that the God of the universe had to die to make us right again. Where do we get off putting ourselves up and taking the credit? No, the gospel rejects every attempt to make it about us. So get smaller by preaching the gospel to yourself every single day. The gospel that says, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a greater savior. I needed him yesterday, I need him today, and guess what? I'm gonna need him tomorrow. A child's humble position means that they ask for what they need. They wonder and they love Will we learn from their example and do the same with our Heavenly Father? If we do, then we'll find ourselves daily getting smaller, moving more and more towards the blessed self-forgetfulness of true humility. If you want to get younger, you've got to get smaller. But you also have to love bigger. That's the second thing. If you want to get younger, love bigger. We've been focusing this morning mostly on verse 4 in our passage. But what does Jesus say next in verses 5 and 6? This is a harsh warning. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And then the next chapter of Matthew, just a page over in Matthew 19, we actually see an example of this this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. In Matthew 19, verses 13 and 14, they read this way. Then children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. 
But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. If you want to get younger, then love bigger. Let the children come to you. Receive them, love them, welcome them. Kids that are here this morning, we have so much to learn from you. We really do. I hope that's been clear in the message. But to learn what we have to from you, we actually have to spend time with you. And we're sorry, kids, that we've fallen short and haven't been as good at that as we should be. Forgive us. Give us another chance. Because what does Jesus say happens if we neglect children? What happens if we refuse kids and if we cause them to stumble or sin? Verse 6, it would be better for us to have a large rock tied around our neck and be thrown into the deepest sea. It's intense. It's this picture of judgment. And Jesus is driving home the point of how seriously he takes this let them come to you command. This is a big deal for Jesus To him, kids are more than just the future, more than just something to sort of be pushed off to the side or worried about tomorrow when they get a little bit older. Jesus knows that kids are part of the church family of today, not just tomorrow. Do we know that? Do we let them come in the way that Jesus did? Listen, if this is your church, these kids, all of them, belong to you. And Jesus makes clear, you've got no option but to love them. And maybe your kids are grown. And those of you who are empty nesters might be tempted to think, I already did all this kid stuff. But there's no retirement in the body of Christ. When it comes to caring for the kids among us in our family, those of you who've done it are the smartest people in the room because you've been there. We need your help. You've paid the dump tax. We don't want to pay it. Help us. Or maybe you're single or unable to have kids. And I won't minimize that struggle and pain for a second. I wouldn't dream of it. But you have a family. And this family needs you. Studies show that kids and students who worship with their church family consistently as they grow up are more likely to hang on to their faith when they're older. That's a huge part of the reason why children are always welcome in our worship services no matter what. We think it's really important, incredibly important for us to worship together as a church family. So the next time you hear a baby cry or a kid talking, instead of being annoyed, praise God for them. Praise God that they're here learning that Jesus and his church are for them and are for them today and not just tomorrow when they grow up. Studies also show that kids and students flourish in their faith development when they have five adults who know them and pour into them. This is research that came out of the Fuller Youth Institute uh, uh, at at a college and seminary in California, Fuller. And they're flipping the model, right? When you go on a youth retreat, which we did a couple weeks ago with the students, it was awesome. You need to have, for safety and just sanity purposes, a a one-to-five adult-to-student ratio. But for a kid's faith to flourish, you've got to flip that formula upside down, and each kid needs five adults that know them and pour into them. Will you be part of that five for a child here at the Brookside campus, for a student here at the Brookside campus? This is why we need volunteers in children's ministry and student ministries, adults who are willing to give of their precious time 
to invest and make a difference. Last year, when we went to two services in September, we made a really big change with how we do children's ministries volunteers. Instead of asking you to give of your time once or twice a month, we started to ask for an every week commitment for a much bigger chunk of time, six months. Six months every week. And do you know why? It's for the kids. All of the best studies bear out that kids need consistency in order for relationships to form and blossom with the, uh, those adults. And we know that every week for six months is a massive commitment. That's not lost on us when we email you or call you or approach you after service and ask you to get involved. But we saw some incredible stories in these last six months as we made that change. Stories of adults letting the kids come to them week after week after week after week, pouring in, investing, making a difference. And you'd think that this would just kick in when the kids get older, but that's not true. My son Bevan, he went from nine months to 15 months in that span of time. And each week, as the volunteers that were in the nursery came consistently, I saw Bevan. It became a little bit easier each week for him to leave mom, maybe crying at first, but maybe less so as the weeks went on. It became easier for him to leave mom and spend time with Jana, with Gerald, with Katie, with Susan. These are real names of people in our congregation that gave six months of their time every week to get to know my son. He's got this weird quirk where he really likes his own socks. He pulls them off and he kind of uses them as a blanket. It's weird and cute and we're hoping he's out of it by the time he goes to college. <laughs> but they learned that about him. They knew that because they were with him consistently. Oh, he's crying. Pull off one of his socks and give it to him. <laughs> It's not just for the older kids. It's for all of our kids and for their benefit. Letting the children come to you could mean, hopefully it will mean, for some of you volunteering. I know that's a big ask. I know. But we always need help. Consider getting involved downstairs. But it also could mean simply taking a greater interest in children and in children's ministries. If you haven't been downstairs in a while or maybe ever except to go to the bathroom, make it a point to get down there. Anna Lynn, our children's ministry director, is doing some incredible, incredible work. Seek her out and ask her about it. Step into the children's ministry's world at Brookside and show an interest. Every little bit makes a difference. Let the children come. If you want to get younger, get smaller and love bigger. Humble yourself and let the kids come to you because only a child gets in. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be the child that Jesus calls to himself in Matthew 18? Standing there next to Jesus, and then he points at you, looks at the crowd, and he says, become like this one, needy and dependent, humbled and low. And lest we forget, that's exactly how Jesus came. The God of heaven and earth became a little one, a child, a baby, he knows what it's like to need and depend, to be marginalized and forgotten, to have his parents tell him what to do and to deal with brothers and sisters. And why? Why did Jesus become a child? So that we could become children. He would die and be raised so that we could be born again and enter into his family, forgiven and whole. For Jesus humbled himself to the lowest place for us. Only a child gets in. Are you getting younger? Let's pray.
Father in heaven, thank you for your son Jesus who makes it possible for us to get younger, to get smaller, to humble ourselves and to get into the kingdom of heaven. May we learn from the beautiful example of children in this church family, Lord, who are wonderful and quirky and amazing and awesome. And may we let them come to us and may they teach us what it means to humble ourselves enough so that we can ask, wonder, and love. I pray all this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.